Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 50. Huzzah! 50! Hey, welcome back. I hope you're enjoying your holidays and you had a wonderful International Solitaire Gaming Day. I've been real busy, you know, still in the process of moving to the new house and fixing things here and there and unpacking still and whatnot and Christmas and all that stuff going on. So yeah, so I've been awful busy. Um, today's episode is on the game Navajo Wars. It's going to be a good episode, I think. It's a brand new game by GMT and not only am I talking about the game, but I'm going to be interviewing Joel Toppin, the designer of the game. Um, so that'll be next. But first, my very brief news. Um, the only item I actually have is that the game Police Precinct is back on Kickstarter again. Uh, it's a new edition of the game, I believe. So check that out. I'll have a link for it. I will also mention that the auction I mentioned a few months ago, I will finally be doing that probably next weekend. So keep an eye out for that. It's going uh, to have a bunch of games on there, hopefully. Is summer solitaire friendly? Not all of them are for sure. Some are duds. Some are actually pretty decent games, I think. My wife wants to go through the boxes of games I've set aside for this, and she says she's going to veto any she's interested in. We'll see what happens there. As I mentioned, if you're a member of the guild, I will give you a 10% discount at the uh, end of the auction. Alright, so let's jump into the interview. So, I'd like to welcome Joel Toppin, uh, designer of Navajo Wars, published by GMT Games, just recently published by GMT Games. Hi, Joel, how you doing? Doing great. Um, th- thanks for being on with me. Um, I, I brought you on to talk more about the, the game you just designed, Navajo Wars. Could you tell us more about it? Yeah, it's um, it's a it's a solitaire game based on the history of the Navajo people, and uh, the the object of the game is the player plays the Navajo people, and the goal of the game is basically survival, both uh, culturally and uh, politically, and uh, it's it's a game that uh, has a lot of replay value. I designed it to be. Uh, to to feel like it's intelligent, like the AI is really thinking, and so um, yeah, you can play it two player. We made a, a two player expansion for it, but it seems like most people are enjoying the the solitaire end. I haven't seen too many reports of people using the the two player uh, end of the game yet, just yet. Is a two player game cooperative or competitive? It's semi cooperative. Okay. You both play the Navajo, but only one of you can win. And so in some ways it actually models history a little bit better because it deprives the players of uh, the godlike ability to uh, control the entire uh, Navajo population with one objective in mind. Whereas in the two-player game, there's ways that you can subtly um, – you can basically be selfish and put your own uh, player needs ahead of the needs of all of the people – and that, uh, in fact, that's how you need to win the game is to uh, gain support over more of the population than your opponent. But usually in order to get support, you have to do things that ultimately are going to hurt the people a little bit. So it makes for a lot of tough decisions and uh, it, it makes for a different game experience altogether, really. I think the developer really likes the, the two-player game. Okay, I imagine it's it's um sort of thing where both players... Where where the one of the players has to win without the enemy winning. Exactly. If the enemy wins, both of you lose, but only one of you can win. Okay. So that's actually a pretty interesting balance. You're, you're trying to keep everybody doing well, but at the same time you want to, like you said, do stuff that might hurt your opponent or hurt both of you guys overall. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the the title of this game is a little bit misleading, though, because it's, it's a, not really a war game, is it? Well, yes and no. Um the title, I'll, I'll tell you right now, the title is actually taken from uh, an academic book on this okay. topic. And originally, the, the book that inspired the game is called Blood and Thunder. But there's already a war game with that title on an entirely different subject. But there's already a war game by that title, so I need to use something different. And so I went with the, uh, the title from the book by, I think his name is Frank McNitt. I might have the first name wrong, but uh, he wrote uh, a book called Navajo Wars. Now, I enjoy war games, hex encounter games. I enjoy Euro games. 
And so with this, I tried to kind of bridge Euro games and war games together and to make, make something that a player that enjoys Euro games would enjoy, but a player that plays war games would also enjoy. So it's kind of a little bit of both, in, in my opinion. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I could, I could definitely see that. It's not a, a war game in the sense that you're you're fighting a war. You're you're more about living through the the history of the culture, aren't you? In this, yes, there, there's fighting, but um, my experience is you're probably uh, you have to be smart about your fighting in this game. If you take an all-out militaristic approach, you probably won't survive. So you have to kind of be smart and pick your fights. So, yeah, there will be fighting involved. There will be warfare, but it's more about the history of the of the people than an actual military war. Yeah, yeah it seems every time I fight in the game, I, I end up hurting myself way more than anybody else. Yes, you have to you have to really be smart about it, plan it out in order to be successful with the uh, with the battle end of the game. I guess that's historically accurate. The. Uh... The, they're called the Dine, right? The Dine. Yeah, Dine. It's, okay. It's Dine. Okay. And historically, I guess they were at a disadvantage when they fought? Well, his, it depends on who they were fighting and where they're fighting. And so they tended to fight only – and this is true of many North American tribes – is they tended to fight when it was to their advantage to do so. And if they didn't feel it was to their advantage, then they would make themselves scarce. So it was difficult for the European enemies to – force battle upon native people okay so it's a guerrilla warfare sort of thing yes it's very much a, a 300 year guerrilla war wow okay wow that's neat um so where does the term navajo come from if they're called dine you said i forgot what you said dine dine yeah that yeah. is uh, in fact it's uh, nathapaskan language the navajo language and uh, that's what they call themselves. In fact, you're going to find if you study most native native people, native cultures here in North America, you'll find that the meaning of their own name for their people, when translated, simply means the people. For example, the Comanche they call themselves the the Nimenu, which means the people. So Dene means the people. Navajo is a name given to them by. Uh, some of the Pueblo tribes. I believe it's there's several different stories I've heard about this from directly from Navajo friends. One story is that it is uh, comes from the uh, one of the the Pueblo tribes, the Tiwa people, who referred to the Navajo by this name, and it meant people that planted fields or people of the planted fields. Another story I've heard, and one that I didn't make reference to in the rule book. Uh, because it's difficult to confirm and it's somewhat derogatory. And that is that the term Navajo meant thief because of their tendencies to raid the, the Pueblo settlements and also the Spanish settlements. So there's a couple stories about what the name Navajo means. It could mean that they were people who planted or it also could mean that they were you know, people who stole sheep. It's, it's difficult to say exactly. I've heard several different stories about it. Okay. It seems like usually – when some group of people talk about another group of people, a lot of times their names are start as something derogatory, unfortunately. Yes. Yes, exactly. So what were the Diné like? Were they nomadic or? Semi-nomadic. They okay. would, you know, obviously they planted fields and harvested. In the game I highlight corn, but in reality it's more than just corn, um, maize. It would be uh, – you know, corn, squash, beans, chilies, um, in kind of in Deshay, there was peach orchards, believe it or not, wow. that uh, were quite actually quite renowned. And so they, you know, would would spend time in one area, but then they would just they could just pick up and move everything as well. So we would call them semi-nomadic. They were not like, say, the Comanche, which were a true mounted society. Uh, the Navajo, while they had horses and they had flocks of sheep, they uh, tended to be semi-nomadic. Okay, I see. Um, and so, what what's the area they lived in like? It's I've been in the Southwest. I know that a lot of it is just desert, and it's beautiful desert. Um, but then there's also parts that are very wooded here and there. Yes, yes. It's well, it's high desert here. Okay. Uh, I, I live kind of in the middle of this in uh, on the Four Corners area, Gallup, New Mexico. Okay. So here it's uh, about 6,500 feet of altitude. 
and where the Navajo Nation is headquartered, um, maybe about 30 miles from here, it's uh, closer to 7,000 feet of altitude, and there's mountains that are sparsely uh, wooded, studded with basically pinyon pine and rocks. Uh, there's also forests, though not very far from here. You have forests in the Zuni Mountains. Uh, you have forests um, just to the north of us in the, the, the foothills of the Rockies. The San Juan Range of the Rockies is pretty well forested. So, yeah, you have forests. You also have areas of badlands um, north by by Shiprock. There's areas of badlands where, it's, where very little of anything grows. And also out toward the Painted Desert in Arizona, that's still part of Navajo country. And that's uh, also kind of a – has more – it's more of a what you'd expect of a desert than uh, – I think when people visit this area, they when they think deserts of the southwest, they think, you know, saguaros and those big tall cactuses. Wild E. Coyote and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's not like that. It's a lot of sagebrush, small pine, and rocks, big rock formations. Okay. A few well, about ten years ago, I moved from California to to South Carolina, where I'm at now. And we drove across the country, and I remember driving through that part of the country. As a matter of fact, we got hit by a blizzard and had to spend the night in Gallup. <laughs> yeah, we we get these freak snowstorms um, that usually will shut down the East West Highway. Wow, yeah, it, it did that night, and you know that's the first time I'd ever driven in snow, and it was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, they. People, a lot of times, they don't think New Mexico and snow, but because of the altitude, uh, anywhere from uh, from September all the way through May, you could have sudden snowstorms. Okay, so that's a, that's a pretty large period of time. Yes. <laughs> so it gets pretty cold in the winter and pretty hot in the summer. Yeah, well, the summers are, are fair. It depends on where you're at. Here, here in yeah. Gallup, I've never seen it get higher than 98 in the summer. And the coldest I've ever seen it here is 20 below. Okay. So, uh, but out toward Arizona, and it can get up to 100 out there toward the Painted Desert area, more toward Holbrook than than here. Okay. So how large is the, the area where the Diné used to live in? Oh, I don't have my notes in front of me. I, I can't tell you how many square miles. But their historic range of territory where they had influence and population is – Perhaps a little bit larger than their current reservation. The current reservation is actually a, one of the largest uh, in you know, First Nations uh, territories anywhere. It's it's pretty huge actually when compared to some of the other tribes. Okay. So they they could range anywhere from the from the Rio Grande Valley all the way uh, deep into Arizona, and then from again the foothills of the Rockies up in Lower Colorado and Utah. Um, as far south as um, maybe about halfway down the the north south axis of New Mexico, so it's pretty pretty okay. large swath of territory. So, so to give people a sense of scale, if it was paved, how long would it take to drive across it? What do you think? Um, yeah, if you wanted to drive across it, take it would be a good full day's drive. Okay, so yeah, that's really that's really big. Yeah. And any idea what the population was like during the different periods of the game? Well, it's it's that's another thing that's difficult, and that's why I chose abstraction as the way to handle the population was because there's no written records kept by the Diné. So the best thing we have is numerous wild guesses, essentially, from Spanish people who basically they they were just making wild guesses, okay. and sometimes they would exaggerate in order to get um, more supplies sent from Mexico City. So. It's very, very difficult to say. That makes sense, yeah. If, if you win a fight, you, you, you mentioned just how huge it is, and if you lose a fight... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> ten, ten to 20,000 people, um, maybe in the early period. It, it's very, very difficult to say. Wow, okay. That's neat. So so the game does span a few hundred years of period. Um, yeah. And I guess I don't want to get into a lot of details about the mechanics now. I could talk about later on about this later on in the show. But... Um, how was it far, hard to, to handle that much variety in the game? Yeah, that was actually kind of a tricky thing. Uh, what I chose to, to use to model the different historic periods, because the Mexican 
officials and the way the Mexican government operated against the Navajo was somewhat different than how the Spanish government operated. And then, of course, the American government was wildly different from either the others. I chose to use the instruction counter mechanism. So every time the game period changes, the the nature of the enemy changes. And so I tried to kind of capture the feel of the the three different periods by using those those instruction counters that drive the AI. I see. I haven't played anything beyond the early Mexican period yet, so I haven't seen that. Okay, yeah, the American period's going to be uh, yeah, it's a little different than than the others. The each period has its own distinctive flavor. It's kind of hard to describe, but when you play it, you'll understand what I mean. It's different. There's different challenges involved. Okay. Yeah, I have, you know, I find it really it takes me forever to play the game. The introductory scenarios could take me two hours. And, you know, it's supposed to get faster than that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, when, I, when I'll sit up and play the game, I can get through the Spanish period in probably an hour or less, depending on how bad I, I do. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I can see where, where some people might become paralyzed by indecision. Yeah, early on when you don't really know what to do, you know which way to go in the game, it takes a while to figure out how should I how should I act. Yeah, the best best suggestion I have for that is just simply uh, make a decision, play it out, and once you've gone through an entire period of the game, you'll have a better grasp over what the enemy is capable of doing to you, and then the next time you play, you can you know have that in the back of your mind. Of course, every game will be different. But at least you'll have some idea of what the enemy is capable of doing to you. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned every game is different. I do like the way you introduce randomness into the game. For that, there's the the action shits, and there's the the deck that's going to be different every time you play, and what order the cards come up, and all that. Yeah. So, so some really neat mechanics in there. The those, those action shits that you came up with, the way they slide on the track. Did you come up with that? Have you seen anything like that in a different game? And that's that's something I just came up with. That's neat. That's a, a burst of genius right there. Yeah, it's one of those two o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, got an idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I like the way it's there's randomness in it because you don't know what shits are going to flip over every time, and that's what, and you don't necessarily know what's coming up in the next turn because you have no idea how many action points the enemy's going to have. Yeah. But at the same time, you can prepare it because you can see what is probably coming up. Yeah, there's a certain degree of probability that you're going to encounter what's face up on that track but you're never going to be certain of it and even uh when you set up the game you always take two of them out so you don't even know yes. it might be that one it's more aggressive than the other just because of that sort of thing yes exactly yeah you're also going to have you know a different mix of, of culture cards available to you as well and that's i think that that's not a small element to the game it's kind of a big deal what what direction you take culturally so yeah, that's there's there's lots of different things that can happen in the game. Yeah, I like the culture cards. I, I always wish I could buy more of them just because they, they look neat how they add variety. And I saw you you just released a couple more. Yeah, I was working on an expansion and there's there's a few ways I, I thought I could go about, you know, using it to uh Did you say you're working on an expansion? Yeah, it was, there was a there was an expansion idea that I, that I came up with. Okay. Um, perhaps something could be you know, sold to supplement the game, and then I decided, you know what, I think I'll just put it out there, print and play. And then if people really like it and want higher quality bits, then they can petition, you know, GMT maybe to put it either in C3i or, or as a Ziploc expansion. But basically it's six new uh, culture cards and a bunch of optional rules to supplement the game. Mm, okay. The new culture cards are very, yeah, they're very interesting. One of them I, I think is personally now my, my favorite. Uh, adaptability, or uh, what that what that card is going to what a card set is going to do is makes it easier for you to adapt to changing circumstances. And the level three card allows you to introduce uh, any level one or two other card that's that you haven't purchased. It allows you to introduce it into play. So, oh, wow. uh, and then you can change it throughout the game. So you can use this one level three card to bring a level two or level one card of a different set into play at different times to meet a current crisis. Okay, that sounds like a really powerful effect, but it's expensive to get there. Yes, it is. The, the more powerful the card, the more expensive it is. 
And so, yeah, <laughs> you're never going to be able to purchase all the cards that you want in the game. Yeah, that's for sure. That's neat. That That is really neat. Do you have any other expansions in mind? There's a couple ideas I had for, for some scenarios, some alt history scenarios, uh, but I need to work on those and I really can't talk about them. But, uh, yeah, there's this I call this one expansion number one, anticipating I'll probably do an expansion to at some point. I, I did but, notice you numbered it. I thought that was neat. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I do hope they put it in an issue of C3I, the, the cards already made. You know, as, as when I looked at the game, I, I saw they had an issue coming up really soon. I was boy, I'm thinking, I hope they really put something in there for the game. Yeah, Roger had asked me to, but I, unfortunately my, my real life was so busy, I wasn't able to put anything together for him. But I'm going to try to get him something for the next one. Okay. Because I have you know some article information. I didn't put all the historic info into the game anticipating I could write you know supplementary articles for C3I. Oh, okay. I just didn't, couldn't have the time to, uh, to get that in before uh, the next issue was supposed to come out. Yeah, I understand. Well, it came out quick, it seems. Yeah. It will be coming out quick. I don't know if they've charged for it yet, but I know it's supposed to be any day now. Yeah, it should be coming out pretty soon, next couple months. I just, you know, like I said, time got away from me and I couldn't get it done in time. Darn, I just had something in my mind regarding what you said about the expansion and all that, and I lost it. Um, I saw you also released on BGG uh, a player aid, which is really handy, on how to use the uh, the event counters. Uh, yeah, I, I posted actually a couple of them. One was there are subtle differences between forts and outposts. Uh, originally, they were both treated the same, but late in the play testing, there were several distinctions that we decided to make for play balance considerations. And so there are subtle differences between forts and outposts. And I did release a PDF file that kind of helps players understand those differences. And also we're limited as to how much space that we had for explaining what the intruder counters did. And, uh, you know, I, I released a, uh, a play aid that kind of explains the intruder counters a little bit better and tells you exactly what to do with the counter when it's revealed. I read somewhere that the uh, intruder counters are, are kind of a bad thing, but it seems like they're mostly positive. Most of them are good. Okay. Uh, now, where they're going to be bad is during the Mexican and American periods, they do something else. The, when the Mexican period begins, it, it begins with the uh, Mexican independence event in play. And one of the effects of that event is that for every two uh, intruder counters on the map, uh, you will add one enemy AP when they collect their action points. Okay. To a minimum of, I believe it says to a minimum of one, I'd have to double check. Oh, okay. Uh, and in the American period, every single intruder on the map adds an enemy AP. So you've got to run around and expose those that you can't let them, um, you know, just sit there. Furthermore, one new intruder is going to be revealed or is going to be placed on the map at the end of every enemy uh, action segment. So every single enemy action segment, they're going to be placing a new intruder, and if you don't go around and mob, it's just going to it's going to bite you big time. Yeah, and so it, you have to be a lot more mobile. It makes it a lot harder to do your planning and your passage of time operations. So in the Spanish period, you can be a little bit more you know, laid back in your approach. Uh, you can't. You really don't have the time to do that in the uh, Mexican American periods. You have to constantly send patrols out and grab those intruders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was playing it yesterday. And I, I do get a sense that in the Mexican period, I found I had a little bit of leisure time, or at least I felt like it did. I, obviously, I didn't in the end because I, I lost terribly about halfway through. <laughs> but uh, I felt like, oh, I could go explore and find these intruders and see what they are. I could leave them alone. Maybe I'll deal with them later and fight some forts or. I had but horses and I did a little bit. Most of them are going to be good because you have a, there's a, four of them are firearms. Uh, you have several that it's going to add to your population. Problem is, once those things are pulled, they're not going to go back into the cup. So later on the period, they're they're going to tend to be more uh, bad or neutral. There's a couple that are that are neutral, and the skinwalkers one can be either bad or good depending on the circumstances in which it's drawn. They're bad. <laughs> <laughs> I just say they're bad. Action points, so I've I've had it where it showed up and it's good. So, 
you know, it can go either way. It depends on if you have action points stowed up or not. Yeah, yeah. I had one action point and I lost it yesterday. <laughs> it's just a, one of a string of uh, disasters that happened for me in that game. Yeah, the the game can be. There's been times where I thought, man, this is easy. I think I'm just going to breeze right through this one, and it can go so bad, oh so quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it starts going downhill as soon as you start. That's <laughs> <laughs> what it was like yesterday. Other games, yeah, like you said, have been much better, and, and that's one of the things I really enjoyed about it. It's, it's variety. It's not the same thing every time you play, and I yeah. think that's what makes a game fun a lot of times. Well, I've noticed this is a your first game you've published. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, yeah, it's my first game design. Well, I know I'm like developing, to... but I've not done my own design work. Okay, I know I'd like to ask. Um, how did the, this game come about? I know you mentioned something in the in the game notes in the box. Yeah, it was one of my uh, one of my friends. He's Navajo, and we play war games. Um, he liked to play, you know, GMT stuff with me. And um, one day we we're I think we we're we were fixing to to play Geronimo. I just gotten it off of eBay or something, and so he was going to read up on the rules. And I don't know, he just we just got to talking about it and uh, about the topic. And I don't, I didn't know a whole lot about the Navajo history, even though I lived here for some time. And so he he suggested that I read up about Kit Carson. Well, I read the book Blood and Thunder, and while I'm reading the book, I just thought, man, this this could be a this could be a game design. And so that's that's where the idea came about. The very fact that it's, you know, really off the beaten path was, you know, it made it a little bit trickier to find someone that would uh, be willing to publish it. So I was really thankful that GMT was willing to give me the chance to publish a game on a topic that uh, I don't think that they thought people would be interested in. But I've been pleasantly surprised to see how many people have responded to the topic. Yeah, it's very interesting. Playing it, I've learned a lot of history, I find, and just reading about the game and and whatnot. Yeah, so I thought, well, if it you know if it does all right, if people like the game, they like and it sells okay, then uh, then I'll work on a second game. And so I'm I'm actually hard at work right now on the uh, on a game for the the Comanche people. Oh, okay. Because I had to research, I had to research them somewhat in the course of Navajo Wars, and I got very, very interested in it because their lifestyle was so different from the Navajo, and uh, yeah, so that's that's one of the uh, that's one of the things that that I'm working on right now is is going to use very similar mechanics in a number of areas, but it's going to do a lot of different things. It's going to be much more of a war game than Navajo Wars because you'll have to conquer the territory and then you're going to have to hold it. I see. Okay. It's going to be a little bit, whereas Navajo Wars, you start off, this is your land. You just got to hold it. Well, in the Comanche game, you actually have to conquer the territory from other tribes and then you have to hold it against the colonial intrusion. Is this also a solitaire game you were thinking or? Yep. It's still going to be a solitaire game. You play the the Comanche people and the, the challenge in this one though is, yeah, you're facing, again, three different periods. You face a Spanish enemy, Mexican enemy. Uh, you also face the Texan enemy and the United States enemy. And they all act a little bit different from one another. And so the, one of the challenges is is how do you make that work in a playable fashion that's that's at least you know fair to the historical uh, circumstances. Mm, neat. Okay. How much of a time period is this game going to cover? This one's going to cover from 1700 through 1875. Okay. So a little bit less because they they really emerged in the in the 1700s in lower uh, lower Colorado. They basically kind of emerged. They got horses, and slowly between 1700, I'd say between 1700 and 1720s they began to shift to from a semi-mounted society to a full-blown mounted, let's go out on the plane society. And uh, basically they, they uh, dominated the Southern plains of the United States. What's now the United States pretty much from 1750 until um, mid 1800s. And this was an entirely distinct culture and society or was it? Okay. Very different. Yeah, they. The only way in which they're similar to the Navajo would be that they were skilled horsemen. Navajo are skilled horsemen, but nobody was more skilled than the Comanche. 
They may have been the, the some of the best light horse since the Mongol people. They, um, yeah, they, they could do things from horseback that's often uh, stereotyped in uh, Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. A lot of times Hollywood movies, they show Indians fighting from horseback and Actually, that's that just didn't happen. Most native people did not fight mounted. The Comanche were a, were an exception to that. They developed the mounted style of warfare, and that's what allowed them to crush these other tribes out on the plains. Was they had a they had a, a way of fighting that the other tribes couldn't deal with. So, yeah, so they're very 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 different. Okay, and this sounds a lot like the. The Eurasian tribes from the steppes, like the uh, the Huns and those. Yeah, kind of very people. much so. Uh, very very similar to the Mongols in their archery skills. Uh, the six shooting revolver was developed uh, as a you know a way to you know enhance the U.S. soldiers' firepower in battle, but the design was going nowhere. Colt's design was going nowhere until he was approached by uh, some Texas Rangers who needed an edge in firepower. They were seriously outgunned out on the plains. And so the six-shooter really was was born as a weapon to counteract the Comanche technology out on the plains. Wow, okay. And then, of course, so now that the Comanche were outgunned, and then when they got the six-shooter back, then they became, they got the edge up in combat. And so it kind of, the balance of, of power which would, shift back and forth based on the technology at hand it's very interesting the warfare that took place yeah that sounds really interesting i can't wait to see that game yeah so that's that's my project i'm working on now okay very cool uh do you game primarily against opponents or solitaire or is it a bit of both well if i can find opponents yeah okay yeah (laughs) i i have been so busy for the last year or so um, with my real job and stuff that it's been harder for me to play on Vassal and whatnot. But uh, uh, that's that tends to be how I'll play my games is, is on Vassal. But I do play a lot of games solitaire. I see. Okay. Do you look for solitaire designs or do you play standard war games playing both sides a lot? Uh, s- standard mostly. Uh, if I find a game that's solitaire that's interesting that that grabs me, yeah, I'm all I'm all about that. Okay. There's very few of those right now, it seems. I mean, more are getting published all the time. I know GMT's done a few. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they're becoming more. There's there's more that new ones that are getting published. Uh, the Hunters just came out. Mm-hmm. I saw Southern, about that. Great, great game. I have. I did not uh, get that through the P500. I kind of wish I had. <laughs> yeah, the only, the only solitaire games I don't like are ones where there's you know, no decision making for the player. I mean, some there's some solitaire games where you're just kind of along for the ride, and I can see where some people enjoy that for the role playing experience. Mm-hmm. But personally, I, I prefer to have games where there's decision making involved. Like B17 Queen of the Skies is like that. Yeah, I just that one just didn't do it for me. Okay, and I thought maybe I'm wrong, but I thought the Hunters was supposed to be similar to that. It is in some ways, but there is enough meaningful decisions in it that for me, I find it really enjoyable. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to have to try that at some point. Nick, do you work for GMT or with GMT? I noticed you've done some videos for them. Yeah, I I handle their YouTube channel. Uh, I do a lot of demos for them. Oh, okay. Every month, I, I try to have a couple demos of their other games. Try to trying to pick new releases uh, to help people, you know, shorten the learning curve on on the new games. Yep. Okay. Um, are you going to do any more demos for this game? I think you did one. Last yeah, I've done a lot of I've done a lot of videos, and I was I was <laughs> underway of uh, one of the projects I had underway was was doing a video version of the tutorial that comes with the game. And I haven't had a chance to finish it. I've just been uh, busy with other projects. But, uh, yeah, I plan to do a demo of it. Okay. Okay, I'll keep an eye out for that. Yeah, you know, I, when I, um, I I reviewed uh, Cuba Libre a couple months ago, and I read through the, the player and tutorial and the walkthrough and all for that game, so I decided to do this one without the walkthrough just to see what, how different that felt. And it's been a bit of a struggle. But... Yeah, the, there's a lot of different things in this game. This was a hard rule book to write, and I think I rewrote it probably three or four times trying to find the right approach. We, we tried several approaches with it. One was to 
try to explain everything, you know, for the new player as best as we could and to, to make it easy so you could just read the rule book and learn the game from it. But what we found was it was hard to look things up because the rule book, you know, became rather lengthy. So mm-hmm. we decided to write the rule book for people who knew the game and make a tutorial for the people who didn't know the game. That way, if you need to look things up, it would be uh, hopefully easier in the rule book. Um, but yeah, there, there's so many different mechanics in this one. I've found it uh, to be a kind of a challenge to write. I, I think if I had to do it again, you know, knowing some of the things I know now, I would do several things different. Definitely should have added a, uh, an index to the rule book. That's one of those things that I just, I don't know how, how I didn't do that, but we didn't put an index and we really should have done that. Okay. You know, I, I think writing a rule book is probably an art unto itself because I'm a programmer and occasionally I have to write like technical documentation and that is just so challenging. Yes. Yes, it is. And I've been involved in a number of development projects. So I'm, I'm familiar with rules. I mean, I was all over the rule book for Washington's war. Uh, it depends on the designer. Some divi- designers, they don't want you messing with the rule book. Uh, Mark Herman pretty much had me, um, making edits for him, uh, in a number of occasions. So that's where I got experience with the rule books was working with Mark Herman. Uh, Volko tends to, tended to mostly do all the rules himself. He didn't, he didn't really want, <laughs> he didn't want my fingers in there. So I would just, was just there watching him work with the rules there. Ah, okay. So I got to work with some really good designers. And so I'm familiar with how the rule books are written. It was just this one with, there's so many different things. The sequence of play is so different. Um, just found it a challenge to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, there's no one right way or, or wrong way to write a rule book anyway. Yeah, I think like it does depend a lot on the game and that sort of thing. And the, the game, it, you know, it looks fantastic. Also, I, I really like the the design, the, the box cover, and the board and everything, the layout. Yeah, I love mechanics. what Roger did with the with the cover that. That was perfect. The, uh, the 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 board was a bit of a, there was a bit of a controversy over it. I knew that traditional hex encounter wargamers probably wouldn't like it, but then um, the first time I saw it, it was so different from what I was expecting. I didn't like it at first. Mm-hmm. And I, in fact, I didn't, I didn't even show my wife. I just kind of closed my laptop. And <laughs> I don't know about this. And then I came back later and I looked at it again. I thought, you know what? It, it just started kind of growing on me. About the third or fourth time I looked at it, I started to see how this really kind of gave life to the design and really spoke to what the game is about. It was The map was very different, but the game is very different. So I said, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. I give it two thumbs up. All right. I mean, it's... Um one of the things I like about the design, it's not such a, a plain, typical hex encounter map where you just see a map of the region. It, it shows a lot of the, the flavor and the culture in there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, again, I think that's one of the things I've really enjoyed the most about the game is just how much the culture of the people has come through for me. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. How long have you been gaming? Off and on since I was a teenager. Okay. Um, I probably, I probably went through about oh, maybe five, six years hiatus and then came back to it probably around 2005, 2006 in a big way. All right. Well, I think I will let you go then. And thank you very much again for, for coming on the show and, and congratulations on getting Navajo Wars published. Well, thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. All right. Have a good evening. Thank you, Albert. So welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to my discussion with Joel Toppin about Navajo Wars. Let me go ahead and tell you a little bit about the game now. <clears throat> so as I hinted at, it's not exactly a war game. And it's not really a Euro game either. It's a, so, some sort of hybrid. In this game, you represent the Navajo peoples, the Diné, and their struggle to survive, I guess, against the originally the Mexican and then the American presence. The game spans a period of about 300 years, from 1598 to 1864. However, when you play, generally speaking, you aren't playing all that at one time. You can. There is a a way to combine the scenarios, but each scenario is generally a different period, probably spanning roughly 100 years. I'm not sure how to describe this game. It's 
pretty complex. Maybe it's a little bit abstract, I guess. Let me start by describing the components. Well, maybe I should start with the history a little bit. The game is represent. In this game, you play the Navajo people. They live in a specific area of the American Southwest. They live in a specific area of what is now the American Southwest, and they've been there not that long, apparently, when the Mexicans, when the Spanish first arrived. When the Spanish arrived, it ended up causing conflict in that the Spanish were looking for territory and trying to convert these people to Christianity. And so that naturally there was some resistance, cultural resistance, I think, as well as uh, military resistance. The same sort of experiences kept on going through the Mexican control and then through the American control until eventually, until basically I guess you could say they were assimilated into American culture, though I'm sure if you go and read a little bit about life today and what's going on in the Southwest, you'll realize that that probably has never really completely happened. Anyways, I said this game deals with the conflict, and I think it's more of a cultural conflict, between the Navajos and the forces of those three nations, the Spanish, Mexican, and then American. So when you play, you pick one of those three periods that to play in, basically, depending on which scenario you choose. Now, before I get more into how the plane works, let me talk about the components. First off, you get this really nice-looking map. It's different from most game maps, honestly, and very different, at least in the style. The game is represented by a bunch of regions that are connected point to point. Well, when I say a bunch, I think there's seven different regions. And the central region is Shiprock. As you heard Joe mention, the Navajo peoples were semi-nomadic, so they basically would settle down, I think, at, at a place and harvest crops and that sort of thing as long as the place was productive. And whenever they needed to, they would move out of there and find a different spot. I found pictures online, and they seem to live, at least in some cases, in dwellings that were sort of... Well, the picture I saw it looked like it was dug out of the earth. So it's definitely a temporary situation. So as I said, the map represents the regions. Each of these regions is made up of a number of spaces. I think in most cases, six. Shiprock has three spaces, however. And each space is numbered from one radiating out to six. They don't all connect in the center like in a Stasis Siege game, but they all... But you can think of it this way. There's a circular ring out of which each of the areas radiate from. And one of the spaces is connected to the Santa Fe, which is basically where the Spanish, Mexican, or American forces, the enemy forces, let's call them, are based out of. Besides all these spaces, there is a track on the left to keep track of different points, and there is... An action, enemy action track on the right side, which is used to, to figure out what actions are going on and coming up in the future. And then there's a couple different holding areas for different counters that are not necessarily being actively used, or for the cubes. And I'll talk more about them later. And finally, there's a display along the bottom for the different families that you have. You can have up to six families in the game, or maybe seven, I think it's six though. And each of the families is made up of up to three or four counters, I guess. You could have a male, a female, and a child counter in the family. And you could also have a horse. If they found horses that they've uh, raided from the enemy, then they could use the horses to move around, and then you move around a lot faster with those horses. So I've described the map. I don't know how easy it was to follow that. But again, basically you have an area representing the region in which the Navajo move, you have Santa Fe that's connected to those regions. You have a point track. You have an action point track. You have a display for the families and places to keep different counters in play. And they move around from in-use to not-in-use areas. I'm not going to talk about those so detailed right now. The game has cards. So you have the play deck, which is composed of three types of cards. There's event cards. There are operation cards, which is the bulk of the deck. And there are ceremony cards. It's a card-driven game. The card you draw is going to affect how each turn is played out. If it's an action, an operations card, the the enemy is going to get to take actions. The player is going to take take actions, and then some other events happen. If it is a ceremony card, those act a little differently. You get to either take the card into your hand. If you do that, it gives you a benefit, or you could just discard it and go on to the next card. If you take it into your hand, it it gives you an immediate benefit, usually giving you a counter. <clears throat> and also, later on during the game, you could play a card from your hand for different effects. They generally let you ignore die roll and instead 
substitute the dot row for a fixed value. So you know it could be an automatic success or failure depending on what the, the value is for that specific card. The drawback is that if you keep the ceremony card in your hand, next time you draw a ceremony card, the first thing you have to do is play the negative effect of every ceremony card already in your hand. So if I take three ceremony cards, so if I take a ceremony card into my hand and then I draw another, I now have to do the negative effect of the first card, whether or not I keep the second card. Um, I found that every time I take a ceremony card, the next card is often a ceremony card again. Even though I know I've shuffled it well and mixed up all the cards a lot, just bad luck for me. Um, I'd mentioned the operation and finally the event cards. They're different. They, they're thrown in to change the way the game feels, I think, depending on which scenario you're playing. Each scenario uses different event cards and different number of event cards. And they're all, you could say they're game changers. They're pretty big. They're pivotal places where you could instantly lose the game. But I think they add a lot of the the flavor that does come from the cards. There are, there's a bag of cubes, about 15 cubes or so. The cubes are used in the game as the Navajo take their actions and f fight against the, uh, the enemy. You're going to draw cubes from a bag and they're going to affect what happens. When you draw a cube, generally if you're raiding the enemy, for example... Brown cube means you found horses, a white cube means you found sheep. Some of the cubes are bad. If you draw a red cube, those are always bad. That uh, Mexico's getting subjugated. It basically means you're kind of, the enemy is kind of starting to take control of the region more. And as more of those cubes are in there, they're able to do more things during the enemy's turn. Red cubes are just bad. There are cultural development cards. There's, I think, probably something like 21 of these or so. There's seven sets of three each. These are cards you buy, and they basically give you more abilities as you play. And each set is a different theme. There's one that's weaving. There's one that's, uh, I don't remember all the exact terms, but there's there's a Master of the Mesas. And so all the card, the three cards in that set are themed around the fact that you really understand your territory really well. There's one, I think, for horsemanship. There's military cards. When you play, you always start with one card already. And each time you draw an event card, you have the opportunity of buying a second or another card. So these are going to alter the way you play the game in that depending on what cards you have, it definitely influences how you the strategy you use and how you play. Besides the cards, the cubes, and then finally there's counters. There's a lot of different types of counters. There's counters to represent your people. I mentioned already male, female, child. There's also elder counters that are used a little differently than the other people. There's counters for your resources, such as horses, sheep, corn, firearms. There are counters for enemy actions. There's there's a few counters to track the, uh, the different resources that have numeric values. And there's the enemy action or enemy instruction counters. There's a set for each of the enemy periods. There's a Spanish, a Mexican, and an American set of counters. Besides that, there's the rule book and a playbook. The playbook has a walkthrough. The, the idea is to use that the first time you play to kind of guide you through the game so you get a feel what it's supposed to be like. And it also has the scenarios in there and some history and other information. The, the playbook is really important. I think especially the walkthrough is very important. I didn't use it. I decided not to use the walkthrough in this one to learn the game. I did when I played Cuba Libre recently, and I'm not sure how I felt about it. It was good or not, so I decided to try it differently in the next game and see how that went. This game is different enough, I think, from most games that it definitely would have been useful to read it and know what's going on. I don't know that it explains good choices versus bad choices so much as walking through the steps and what you do, not why you do them. Now that I've said that, let me go ahead and talk through the turn of a game. Basically, each turn you're going to draw a card. It's going to be one of the three types I mentioned, from one of the event cards. Well, basically each turn, the first thing you're going to do is draw a card from the play deck. It's either an operations, ceremony, or event. I already mentioned the ceremony card, pretty much how they work. The, um, the operations card has a few different parts. First is the enemy action. Generally speaking, the enemy goes first each turn. And then comes the player action, and then the the event. There's a major and minor event in each card. The first thing you could do is decide if you do want the enemy to go first or not. You can basically pay to let them go second, to have them go second so you could go first. And it also reduces how many action points they're going to have to spend on the turn. 
So it's always a good idea to do that if you can't afford it, but definitely resources for that sort of thing are limited in the game. When the enemy does go, they use the action dis- enemy instruction display I mentioned. How can I visualize this? Um, gosh, I'm not even sure I could explain how it works with you without showing you. The The enemy instruction counter has 18 spaces. 12 of those are always going to have counters in them. There's 6 that are inactive, and they're basically on standby, and they may come in at any point and replace one of the current counters. There's 6 active spaces and 6 used spaces. I'll get cycle back in. Um, the spaces are ordered, and basically the actions are going to happen from top to bottom. Each counter on the space has a numeric value on it, and it tells you how many action points it costs. The enemy has some number of action points. Any action points not used from the previous turn were carried over, plus any he got this turn based on that operations card. So you basically, you, you starting from the top, you, you spend the action points for that first action, and you do whatever it says on the counter. Then you slide the counter over to the right, and do the next action. Uh, spend the counters, and slide the action over to the right, and then do the next, until you can no longer afford an action. At that point, the enemy's turn is over. Remaining action points will be used on the next turn. Those actions that haven't been used slide up to the top of the list, so whichever was third before is now first. There's two spaces empty at the bottom. The two you did do wrap around back to the bottom in reverse order. So you have the same actions coming up over and over, but the order is getting shuffled up. Besides that, occasionally you're going to... each well, each turn when the enemy goes, one of the first things you're going to do is you're going to roll two dice... And the two count, the two numbers you roll, those counters get flipped over. So those six actions you know are coming up are going to get shifted up around a little bit. If you roll doubles, instead of flipping them over, because you only rolled one space, you'd end up flipping over twice. You switch it with the inactive column. So now one of those inactive standby actions suddenly, or instructions suddenly become active. And one that was in play is now out for a while. So you always kind of have an idea what's coming up, but things get shuffled up, which is really neat, really neat mechanic. Now the types of actions, there's different things the enemy could do. I, I'm not going to go into detail on all of them, but they're basically, they could build missions or ranchos, which, which uh, just generally speaking, are going to cause trouble for the Navajo people. They could subvert, they could colonize, which basically means... Those those missions they've built on ranchos are going to start moving towards the center of the board to the more hard-to-reach areas. The more they could do that, the, the smaller the, the territory of the Navajo becomes. And more or less, that's, not a, that's sort of abstractly true. Uh, there could be a Comanche raid, in which the Comanche start showing up in different spaces, and if they happen to come across Navajo, they fight them. Generally speaking, in this game, fighting is bad. Direct conflict is generally bad. Not always, but generally. Um, there could be a defender peace counter. I have actually never come across that. It sounds awful useful. It sounds like an actually it's a good uh, enemy instruction, but I have yet to play it, so I don't know what it does. There's peace, I also said already. There's raids, where the, the enemy could do a raid, starting from the Santa Fe space. They're going to have a number of counters... And those guys are going to start moving out across the board, spreading into the Navajo lands until they come across Navajo counters, at which point they fight them. Navajo have the opportunity to go hide or ambush them. Um, one of those two is generally a good idea if you can do them. If you can't, then it's usually bad luck. You're probably going to use, lose units or lose uh, Navajo people. Uh, they could take slaves. They could subjugate, which basically means draw counters out of that bag if they draw red counters that's bad if they draw other counters they're just out of the pool for you unfortunately and they could subvert which is maybe I got that those two backwards subvert is a couple different things depending on the current situation um so those are the different things the enemy could do and this generally cause trouble for you and give you things to have to deal with during the in the game when the player's turn comes up, you have three different choices you can make. You could spend it in a planning turn, you could take player actions, or you could do a passage of time. Um, they each play very differently. 
in the planning turn, it's a lot like what it sounds like. You get more spent points to spend in the future turns, more action points. Those are what you use to alter the enemy's turn and basically reduce their action points or and delay them. It's useful for other things too, but that's one of the main things you could do with it. You could change the stance of the different families and do try and do things with your points by using those elders that you have. Your elders are kind of neat. As they start in the board, they're very weak. As time goes by, if they're still around, they'll become more powerful in that each time... During this planning phase, for each Elder counter you have in play, you get to roll a die. And if you roll successfully, then you get to do something with that Elder. And the things are, like I said, altering your stance generally or getting more action points. Brand new Elders basically have a 1 in 6 chance of succeeding. As the Elder have been around longer and you've done more planning phases, that chance is going to go up and up. Unfortunately, Elders that are around too long eventually die. Another thing you get to do during this phase is you get to get a counter, a family member counter, and put it in a standby position, basically. And later on, that counter might come into play to replace family members that have died or been captured and lost, or to start new families. So that planning phase is basically letting you get prepared for other parts of the game. The planning phase is very important. I always feel like I don't do enough planning. The other choice you could do is take actions. Your actions are generally... Your actions are letting you do things like move your people around from space to space, uh, plant and harvest corn, trade at forts if there's any forts around. I haven't played in, the, in any scenarios that have forts yet. Um, you could do raids, generally raids against New Mexico. And when you do a raid against New Mexico, you basically draw cubes out of the bag, out of your cube bag, and depending on the color, do something different. Like I mentioned before, if you draw a brown or white or black, you get some resources. If you draw red, that's bad. That's generally bad, but not terrible. If you draw green, you end up having to fight. Um, so that's probably one of the main things I found I was doing in the game: moving around, planting corn, and doing raids. Fighting in the game, and this is—I think this is important. Fighting is important, and that's one of the things you could do. Though I haven't quite figured out how to do it or why it's important, but I can tell that it is. Um, when you fight, it, a lot of times it ends up altering your enemy's um, military stance and morale, or potentially doing these things. Having these things low is definitely useful when you play the game. And as a matter of fact, the victory points are in part determined by the enemy's morale, so you want to have that as low as possible. So, so anyway, those are the, the generally the kind of things you could do during your action segment. Instead of doing the actions, instead of doing the planning, the third you could thing you could do is a passage of time that basically mean generally means it's time to feed your people any of the people that you had drawn earlier during the planning segments and stuck into the standby columns and the standby boxes can now replace missing family members or become new families your elders age and or potentially die anyway and so the newest elders the only die in a one in six as they get older, there's more and more likely to die, which is basically the opposite of getting to use them. Okay, so, so that's some of the stuff that could happen. Also in that, uh, also in that passage of time, there's an opportunity for the enemy morale to go down, which is a great, again, a great thing because that affects the final victory points in the game. Um, there's a certain condition in which that can happen. I'm not going to get into that into detail, but again, if so, if you could plant, do these. During your turn, that's great because that might help your your long term goals. Unfortunately, a lot of times you really want to take actions instead of doing these things because, like, boy, those actions can be useful. And finally, you get to do in the turn some events. Like, and I think I mentioned the events. They're generally well, I really didn't mention the events in great detail, but they're generally different things that affect the game. Um, they might have you fight a battle against somebody, or might place counters somewhere for you. Um, Intruder counters, which are often good, but not always. I didn't mention intruder counters, but when they go on the map, it's an intruder with a question mark, and you don't know what's on the other side of the counter. When you visit that space, you get to reveal the counter. A lot of them are good, some are bad, some could be good or bad. Too many of those on the board could be a bad thing, though. So anyway, that's just a quick diversion, but there are events, and some of the events are also adding, doing things like adding drought counters or switching around some of the enemy instruction counters. Drought is bad, but not terrible. Basically, a, a space with drought is not going to be able to feed as many people. 
but it only impacts the game if there's people in those spaces anyway. I haven't played a game yet where drought was a major issue, and I, I bet it can be, but it hadn't happened. So I've kind of given you a walkthrough through the game. Probably, if you haven't played this game a couple times already, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. If you've played this game once, it probably still didn't make a lot of sense. And the thing is, just because this game is pretty different from most other games, and a bit complex. Not super complex, but just it's different enough that the complexity that is there is it's hard to grasp. And what's hard, it's hard to grasp what you're supposed to do in this game and how you're supposed to play well or, or not well. I'll go ahead and say that's probably the biggest drawback about the game. It's, it's got a little bit of a steep learning curve to get into the game and play it. You're going to have to play a few times before you, you really gain a lot of enjoyment. The first few games are definitely very slow. A lot of referencing the rule book and charts and that sort of thing. The more I've been playing, the less and less of that happens. Now, what do I like about this game? Um, first of all, it's eye candy. The game, I think, looks really nice. I love the map. I like how different it looks from most maps. And I, I love how, as I'm playing, I get a lot of a sense of the culture and the theme coming out of the game. Um, and I do feel like as I'm playing, I'm learning a little bit about history and about what the way of life was like for the Navajo people. I mean, and I'm sure I'm just barely scratching the surface and really don't have any real concept of what it was like. But I do appreciate that I have. I do feel like I've been learning something, and enjoying it while I'm doing that. Playing this game has a lot of variety. Also, each time you play the game, you're going to pick which develop, cultural development cards you start with out of those 21. And as a matter of fact, six of those 21 cards are going to be in there because you remove two of the, the sets entirely. So each game, you just have different options of what you can do in terms of your cultural development, and. And I should mention that doesn't have a I'm gonna say it doesn't have a huge impact, but it it doesn't play a very huge direct role, I think. I think those influence how you play somewhat, but it's more long term strategy than than anything else. When you when you set up the enemy instructions, there are two more instructions that will go on the board. There's fourteen instruction counters, but you only use twelve each game, so you each time you play it's a little bit different on how the enemy's gonna behave. They may be more aggressive or more passive. They may be more raised from Comanche or less. Depending which period you play, you have a different set of counters. And so again, that's going to change the whole stance of the game there. And probably the difficulty too, I bet. From the interview, it sounds like the, the later the time periods, the harder the game gets. And that was, man, I get the feeling that was very deliberate. Um, as you play, the, the way the actions are mixed up changes the game around a lot. Some... Actions show up more than others. I've had games where I had tons of raids happening. I had games where I had very few raids. And lots of uh, enemy missions showing up and I had to deal with them. The intruder counters can mix up the game. I've had games where there's lots of intruder counters and I spent time going after them. I've had a couple of games where I didn't see a single intruder counter. And, so, and since the game is changing a lot from turn to turn, I think, you're ending up, it's, ends up being a very tactical game. And th there's strategy in there, as I mentioned depending on what cards you have available and what enemy instructions are in and that sort of thing. But also managing that stra that long-term strategy from turn to turn ends up becoming very tactical and very challenging. So overall, I think this is a really, really neat game, really fun with a lot of, with a lot of replayability because there's so much variety in the game. I think I mentioned there's five scenarios. I have only played two of the scenarios, both in the Spanish period. And mainly the introductory scenario. So, you know, once I get the hang for how that feels and I've played a bunch of games and finally feel like I could win consistently and then I can move on to a different scenario, the game will suddenly feel different again because there's different instruction mix and different event cards and that sort of thing. And then once I get the hang of that, then I can move on to the American period and again it changes. And there's even an opportunity to play a campaign game where you go through the entire time period. I cannot imagine doing that. Because it'd be so huge, it would take a while, but it sure is, sounds neat. Another thing I want to mention, you know, the, as I said, the game is a bit complex. I think because of the complexity, a couple of things were missed in the rulebook. Go check out BGG. There's a, an, um, a couple player aids that you should download. And I get the feeling these should have been in the game when it was published, for whatever reason it was left out. Go look for the expanded summary of the intruder actions, of the intruder counters. I found it very hard with, to, to understand them without this. 
and there's also a few other play raids by other people. All that's very useful information. Um, once you've played the game a little bit and got the hung of the hang of it, it'll make a lot of sense. I do, you know, and and it's interesting, you know, I find that this game. I've been thinking of what does it remind me most of? What can I compare it to? It is very different to most games, but of all the ones I have played personally, it most reminds me of Mosby's Raiders. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. The the games are not really similar at all. Um, there's point to point move in it. There's point to point movement in it, and that might be the same. You're you're raiding the enemy, but the way it works and the time period of it. I mean, it's just all—it's all very different, and may, maybe that's why I want to compare these two games because they're both so different from other games I have played. Also, I think in in the scope, in the complexity of the game, they're relatively similar. I think in the difficulty, they're similar. Um, so I don't know. So if, if you've tried uh, Mosby's Raiders, maybe that gives a little bit of an idea of what you're in for in terms of complexity and gameplay, though. Absolutely not at all in terms of mechanics or design or just about anything else. Anyway, I, I have no idea how much you're able to get out of this review. It's a, a cool game. You may want to check it out. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you'd like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek or you can email me at OnePlayerAlbert at gmail.com. You can also post comments on the Podcast Geek list on BoardGameGeek or come visit the One Player Guild on BoardGameGeek for comments and discussion and whatnot. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected under a Creative Commons license and can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. Thanks for listening.